today we begin, be a disciple. And the title today is actually Begin. It's time to grow. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I want to pray that you, uh, by the power of your spirit, would move in our lives. That you'd move in me. You'd move in each one who is here. You'd move in those that are watching online. God, that you would give us a fresh sense of your calling on our lives. I pray you'd help us to connect to you and what you want us to do, who you want us to be. And Father, just help us. Speak to us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a growth campaign. You might be sitting here going, (laughs) Pastor, sounds like a lot of work. Growth? I mean, if I'm going to grow, that's going to require effort. And so you're asking me to get up and, and do something. And to be honest with you, Pastor, I'm just trying to get through today. And thinking about engaging a process of growing does not really seem like something that I can do right now. And uh, I'm overwhelmed with my life as it is. I mean, some of you might feel like Clara, who was the mom of a one-year-old boy. And one day, uh, as she was going through, she discovered she was in the middle of probably one of the worst days of her life. Uh, The washing machine broke down, and so she wasn't able to do the laundry. Her phone her phone wouldn't quit, and uh, it's probably just my beard, sorry. It causes problems sometimes. Hey, um, and so uh, mostly it's a benefit, but every once in a while. So anyway, um, but, but the washing machine broke down. The phone wouldn't quit uh, buzzing and ringing. She couldn't get off her head. She had a migraine, and so she's just in, in pain and discouragement. In the mail came a bill that she didn't know how she was going to pay, And she's just overwhelmed. She lifted her little one-year-old son up, put him in his high chair. She sat down in the chair next to him. She leaned her head onto the tray, and she just started to cry. And instantly, her little one-year-old son took the pacifier out of his mouth and put it in his mom's mouth. Okay, listen, that, that sounds kind of mean, moms. We all have days that we feel overwhelmed and we just feel like crying. You know, men, we get mad instead of crying. You know, usually we get angry, but, um, but that's kind of our emotion that's equivalent. But we all have days like that, and oftentimes we feel like we're in the middle of it and uh, we're overwhelmed. And, and listen, I certainly understand what it's like to be in the middle of a crazy life with too much to do, an overwhelming sense of, of what we're asked to accomplish You know, Mary and I, in 2002, we moved our family down to Atlanta, Georgia, from McCook, Nebraska. A very similar, uh, you know, town of 8,000, whatever. 4.5 million, whatever it was. Same culture, you know, identical. Yeah, it was a big change, and so here we are, uh, taking on this. Anyway, we had a mission. We were supposed to go there to start a church and try to reach people for Jesus. And that's not a small task, all right? That can have some difficulty with it. Um, Starting anything is hard, but, you know, you try and start a church. Well, if you try to start a business, you're going to have obstacles and difficulty. And there may be days that you think the devil's working against you. But if you're trying to start a church, he for sure is working against you to try to stop you, right? And so here you go, difficult level. And then we worked for about a year in our funding that we had, uh, which we knew this was going to happen. It went away. We kind of used it up, the resources that we had raised. And so uh, Mary had to go get a job. I had to go get a job. And so I went out there. I'm a youth pastor. You know, I'd done some farming and uh, done some construction, but I'm trying to do something in the area we're living in. So I just went out and I started putting in applications at places. And I went into the Staples store I didn't know what a staple store was. I went into one, and I had a connection with the manager, and I I felt like, man, maybe I can talk him into hiring me. And I had to work hard to get a minimum wage job at Staples. I talked him into a little bit more of the minimum wage, but um, but it was it wasn't easy. And then I went to work there, and I'm, I mean, yeah, I'll take whatever hours, whatever shift you have. Yes, sir, I can work then. You know, so uh, so I'm trying to get to work to open the store six in the morning. Mary is working at a hospital as a nurse, working 12-hour shifts, working nights. So there, were, there was a stretch of time there where I'd get our three kids up in the morning and uh, try to get some clothes on them, get a little food in them, you know, 
get him into the car without killing anybody. And then we'd drive to the staple store. We're in the parking lot. And Mary would pull up after working all night. And we'd trade off. And I'd give her the kids. She'd take them, get them to school or whatever. And she'd try to get some sleep. I mean, I don't know how we made it through. You know, my wife's a, a saint. And uh, that's part of the reason we made it through. But tough time, crazy time. And I know what helped us a lot was to stay focused on the mission that God had given us, why we were there. And it wasn't easy, and there was a lot of obstacles to it. So I understand what it's like to be in the middle of crazy times and to not think, how in the world am I supposed to grow? How am I supposed to engage a process to grow? And I just want to encourage you that uh, sometimes in order for us to bring order to the chaos, we need to focus on our spiritual health. We need to focus on where we're at in our lives. If we're going to see order come to, the, to our lives, right? Oftentimes the disorder and the chaos is partially there because of where we're at. And, and certainly at the very least, our ability to handle it and to navigate it with maturity and strength and to walk through difficult times comes from a life that is growing. And so I'm calling us as a church to make a, a commitment to grow. And over the next eight weeks to say, listen, um, I'm not going to allow an excuse or reason to get in the way of me engaging this growth process. You might say to me, uh, you know, pastor, I really don't have time to do another thing. I got a lot going on. It's fall and the kids have stuff going on. We all got stuff going on. And so I understand that, but could I gently challenge you that I don't think you have time not to do this. Let me challenge your thinking on time. The time in my life that I felt regret and remorse and felt like I wasted time was time I wasn't investing and connected to God, my relationship with him, and growing. Those are the times that I look back and say, I wasted time, okay? So time spent growing, engaging your faith is not wasted time. You, you don't have the time not to do it. If you want to find a way to get more time out of your life, spend time with God. Men, your families, your wives and your kids need you to grow spiritually. If your wife could sit you down, and she probably has, and say, please, you need to grow. Come on. You need to grow. I need you to be a stronger believer, to lead us spiritually. Uh, ladies, wives, Moms, your family needs you to grow. Your husband needs you to grow spiritually. Your kids need you to grow spiritually, right? Uh, young people, students, young people, your parents, your teachers, the people that are working with you, they need you to grow spiritually. Listen, we don't live in a vacuum. We're connected to other people. And I'm just telling you, the people in your life uh, want to see you grow. We get stuck in ruts in life. We can get slowed down. We can get accustomed to our pattern of life and kind of accept it for good or for bad. Openness is essentially the willingness to grow. Openness is essentially the willingness to grow. A distaste for ruts, eagerly standing on the tip of our toes, looking into the future for what God is going to do, a better view of tomorrow. Uh, there was a pastor who told it this way. There was a man that bought a radio one time, and uh, he lived near Nashville, Tennessee. He bought a radio. He brought it home. He plugged it in, put it up on top of the, uh, the refrigerator. He tuned it into WSM, which was the radio station that the Grand Ole Opry was broadcast on. So he tuned it into that station. He pulled the knobs off and threw them away. He's like, this is the station I want to listen. This is all I want to listen to, you know? It's like some of you go home, Fox News, man. That's all it's all right. It's what I want to listen to. Listen, we all have those. We want to tune into something, right? But here's the thing. I'm asking you during this season, eight weeks, to be open to something new. I believe God has something new that he wants to say to you. He wants to speak into your life. There are seasons where we need a fresh sense of God's calling. We need to hear from him again. There's a phrase I want us to know and remember High commitment equals high growth. High commitment equals high growth. If you want to grow in your faith, and I, I believe you do, then there's some commitment you've got to make. You've got to step up your commitment level to see more growth happen. It's a principle of life. It's a universal principle and applies to our spiritual life. So there's some key commitments I want you to make. I'm going to ask you to make during this campaign. One is to be in church 
every Sunday. Try to get here, or at least on the weekends, Saturday night service, Sundays we got to say, listen, I'm going to get to church. I'm going to be in a service. I'm going to hear the message. I'm going to grow during this campaign. Hear it. Be here. Um, Use church as an excuse to say no to something else. Uh, there's too often that we use other things to make an excuse. Oh, I can't go to church because I got something else. Use it, to, flip it around and use church. Hey, I got to be in church. I can't do that. Sorry. Um, it'll work. It'll be okay. You know, one of the things I did when I was working at Staples, I said, listen, um, I, I need to be in church on Sundays. I'm trying to start a church. I'm, you know, I'm a part of that. It's real important. Uh, I can't work on Sundays. And they said, sir, this is retail. You don't get to say you don't work on the weekends, man. Everybody has to work on the weekends. And so I said, I know, listen, I'll work. I'll be one of your best employees. I'll work hard. I'll give it all I got, but I really need this. And, and um, because I kind of fought for it a little bit, I, didn't, I wasn't a jerk. I didn't make a big scene, but I just said, this is really important to me. I was able to get most of my Sundays off. I know that doesn't work for all of you. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying, let's fight to be a part of this. Second commitment, be in life group each week. As I said, we're starting life groups. We have rows that we learn in. We have circles where we really mature. We get to interact about our faith, and we get to share what's going on in us, and we hear others. Circles are essential to our growth. That's why we have life groups. We still have spots in life groups, openings. I know some of you know you need to get in a life group. God's speaking to you. You're feeling that, and you've resisted it. You know how this goes with God. Like, do you really think you can resist that? You're not going to be able to sleep. He's going to bug you. He's going to wake you up all the time, remind you. Just do it before you leave today. Just sign up, get in a life group. It's going to be good. Then you can sleep tonight and you can have some peace throughout the next few weeks. Get in a life group. I encourage you. The the next thing, uh, commitment, is to focus on the attitude for the week. In our life groups, we're going to go through the Beatitudes. This is a Sermon on the Mount. These are perspectives, mindsets that we need to have to grow in our faith. The first attitude that we're going to focus on this week is this truth, this attitude that you need God. You live with an awareness that you are spiritually poor and you need God in your life. You need his forgiveness. You need his grace. You need his mercy. You need his empowerment that we don't come to the table with anything to offer. We come to God spiritually poor. We need him. We've got to walk through life with this mindset. It's what puts us in a position to grow in our relationship with him. And what goes along with that is to memorize the verse of the week, which is going to be each one of these beatitudes, a different one for each week. The first one is Matthew 5, 3. It's a short verse. I'm asking you to memorize it. Put it on a card this week. Work on it as you go throughout your week. Get it in your head. Get it memorized. This is what it says. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You want to enjoy the presence of God, his presence, his power, his rule in our life, right? We got to come to him. We got to know that we need him. So work on that this week. Make those commitments. The more commitment you make, the more growth you're going to experience. Today, we're going to use the word grow as an acronym to work through 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and glean from this chapter some of the key behaviors we need to have in our lives to grow as disciples of Jesus. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 if you have your Bible or your phone. If you want to turn on your app, uh, get to 1 Corinthians 10. We'll have it on the screen as well. But uh, we're going to use this word grow as an acronym for these key behaviors. The first one is this. The word G, or the letter G in the word grow stands for God. Put God first in everything. Let's read, starting 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, let's read together. I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. All of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses. All of them ate the same spiritual food. All of them drank the same spiritual water. For they drank from the spiritual rock that traveled with them, and that rock was Christ. Yet God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies and their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. These things happened as a warning to us so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did. As the scriptures say, the people celebrated with feasting and drinking and, indul- and they indulged in pagan revelry. And we must not engage in sexual immorality. 
Some of them did, causing 23,000 of them to die in one day. Nor should we put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and then died from snake bites. And don't grumble, as some of them did, and, and were then destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples to us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing down for us an admonition. He wrote it to the church in Corinth. It applies to us as well because we live in the end times, right? The end of the age. We're in that season. And so he says, listen, the nation of Israel came out of Egypt. They were there because of Joseph. Joseph got them into Egypt as a miracle to provide for them in a time of famine. So the nation of Israel moved down to Egypt out of God's provision for them. He saved them from starvation. In Canaan. And so they, they ended up in Egypt. But over the years, over the 400 years, a Pharaoh came to power who didn't know Joseph. And he began to enslave them because their numbers had multiplied so much. And so uh, he enslaved them. And so the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt, working for the Egyptians, building their buildings and their structures. But God heard their prayers, the persecution they were under, and there was a man named Moses that he raised up to be a leader, to lead them out of Egypt. And under Moses' leadership, God confronted Pharaoh with his power. And after 10 plagues, Pharaoh broke down and released God's people to leave. And so they left Egypt. And once they left Egypt, Pharaoh relented of his decision to let them go, raised up his armies and pursued them. The nation of Israel came to the Red Sea. They were stuck. The Red Sea in front of them, the armies of Pharaoh behind them. But God did a miracle and opened up the Red Sea and they walked through on dry ground. And there was a pillar that led them, a pillar that was a cloud during the day and it was a pillar of fire at night and they followed this. That was Jesus, the Apostle Paul tells us. And so God led them into the wilderness and he provided for them. He uh, gave them water out of a rock. He gave them manna or bread from heaven that they could eat each day. And he taught them to trust in him so that they could follow him and live for him. And yet, in spite of all he did for them, they rebelled. They got involved in wickedness. They got involved in the evil practices of the world around them. They put other idols in front of God. And they got involved in things that were despicable and that were evil. And so Paul says, listen, this, this account has been recorded for us. And God was harsh with the nation of Israel. He punished them severely because of their disobedience and their rebellion. He goes, listen, I don't want that to happen to us. And we live in the age of grace, as some call it. God isn't doing what he did uh, to the nation of Israel, thankfully. But don't think for a minute that God doesn't care how we live, that he's not uh, demanding of us that we live in a way that honors him. We've got to put him first in our lives. The key warnings in this passage don't get caught up in craving evil things. Don't get caught up. Listen, cravings are a warping of what is a natural desire that we have as human beings. Our desire for food is natural. Uh, it keeps us alive. We need to eat to live. Also, eating is enjoyable. Uh, food is a wonderful experience to eat good food, all right? So it's great. But when we put, uh, when, when food and desire for food is warped, it becomes a craving that becomes destructive for us. And all of a sudden, uh, it isn't healthy, and we're eating too much, we're eating the wrong things, uh, and we're doing stuff with food that wasn't intended. We're not walking with that craving in its right place, right? That desire, and it becomes, uh, it can become something that is evil for us. Sex is another one. It's a desire we have. It's an urge that we have. It is intended to be enjoyed inside of a marriage covenant. That's how God intended for marriage, uh, for sex to be enjoyed. And it is enjoyable, right? But it happens inside a marriage. And yet sex can be something destructive for us when we get outside of that, begin to engage in it in other situations, other settings. We get involved in um, what the Bible calls sexual immorality. And so he's saying don't, don't get involved in that. Don't let that become an evil craving. How about work? Uh, work is a wonderful thing. We were created to work. God gave Adam and Eve work to do. And yet work, for some of us, there's a term called workaholics. And work all of a sudden becomes something that I'm doing too much of. All my time is spent there. I'm looking for my identity and fulfillment and sense of success there and who I am. And it becomes 
it can become an evil craving. Money. Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money, right? And so money can be, become my focus and what I want, feel successful to have the stuff that I want. It gets tied to materialism and it can become an evil craving. We've got to protect against these things. Keep God first in our life. The apostle also says, also says in this passage, don't worship idols. Well, these things that we can put in front of God in our life can become idols to us. We don't make uh, idols typically. We don't carve things and put them in our homes and worship them. But we do have stuff that we worship. We do have things in our life that we put in front of God. The apostle says, don't do that. We're not to put anything in front of God in our lives. Don't engage in sexual immorality. He says the, the, the nation of Israel began to engage in pagan practices involving uh, sex outside of the way it was intended by God. We have issues with that in our culture. We have porn. Pornography has become so prolific in our country. The access to it is so easy. We have a hard time keeping our kids away from it. It's almost impossible to find a young person, you know, over the age, uh, over fifth grade that hasn't been exposed. And so this is damaging. It's hurting us. <laughs> and men and women are involved in it, right? And in our church, we know that many of us are engaged in that. Man, it's destructive. It's dangerous. It's damaging. It's evil. We've got to go no to that. We should be fighting against it. Too often we just uh, engage in it and, and, and think it's not that harmful. It's not that big a deal. But it is. It's going to hurt our ability to love and to have a good, healthy relationship. Romance novels can come in there. Oftentimes for ladies, that, that um, fantasy life that begin to, can take the place of or be an escape from our real relationships. Living together before uh, married or really any kind of sex outside of marriage. Once again, I've had people argue with me, Pastor, where does it say in the Bible you can't uh, have sex outside of marriage? Where is that talked about? For instance, if we know we're going to get married, we're in love, we can't just live together. You know, that's become a practice a lot of people are doing, right? And so I say, well, look in the scripture and look at the times where sexual activity is there. And it's going to be found inside of marriage. That's where it's going to be endorsed. That's where it's going to be lifted up. And that was God's intention. Created Adam and Eve and put them together. That's how it began. And so we can see what God's ideal was, what he wants from us and really demands of us. And this sexual immorality, if it's not outside of marriage, then what is it? We got to learn to come into alignment with what God says. Put him first. Don't allow other things to get in the way. The last thing that Paul says, warns uh, this church and, and us in, as well as, uh, he warns us against testing God by grumbling and complaining. Now listen, uh, that can get, uh, that's easy to do. And I can get uh, as much of a complainer and grumbler as anybody. And I find myself in patterns sometimes where I'm just walking in that. It's like, why, how did I get there? Why am I being so negative? There's a, there was a, a, a guy that led tours at the Blarney Castle in Ireland. And he was explaining to a group one day how his job wasn't all glamorous and perfect as it might look. It's sometimes it was really tough. And he was sharing about a group that came as tourists to the Blarney Castle to, to look at the area. And he said, this group got uh, to, uh, to the castle and I started talking to them and man, everything was wrong. And they were complaining about everything. I mean, everything from the weather wasn't right. The food wasn't good. Their hotel accommodations were not right. The prices of everything was off, was too high. And to top it all off, when they got to the castle, the Blarney Stone was roped off and they couldn't get to it. One of the women who was part of the group, she's kind of the chief complainer, she vocalized everything that everybody was thinking. She said, are you kidding me? I traveled all this way to kiss the Blarney Stone and I can't even get to it. What a horrible, miserable trip. And the guide said to the lady, listen, ma'am, it's a well-known thing, and this is true. Uh, it's tradition in our country that if you kiss someone who's kissed the Blarney Stone, then it counts. It's the same thing. And she was like, oh, sure, and I suppose you've kissed the Blarney Stone. He said, not only that, ma'am, but I've sat on it as well. <clears throat> That's the nicest way I've ever heard of seeing that before. Hey, listen, uh, <laughs> the truth is that God takes what we do seriously. All right, he does. The things that we do, that we engage in, that we're a part of, he wants us to put him first. If you look at the Ten Commandments, which is a low bar, it's a low bar, 
It's not a high bar. It's a low bar. That, that bar, the first, I think it's the first four or five deal with a relationship with God. And it's like how we interact with him. Put him first. Don't have any of the other gods before him. Don't worship idols. Keep him first. The reason for that is we need to have God first in our lives. Otherwise, we get involved in other things. We get off track. We begin to, to get involved in these other things, which are distractions. They pull us away from God. So keep God first. He takes it seriously what we do. We need to take it seriously as well. We got to keep him first. This helps ensure that we do the second key behavior, which is to do what is right. G is for God. R is for right. Do what is right at all times. We've got to have, we've got to be poised in this direction with our lives. Not what can I get away with, but what is the right? What's the best thing to do? And I'm going to make an effort to do it. I'm going to fight to do that. 1 Corinthians 10, let's continue reading in verse 12. If you think you're standing strong, the apostle says, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience, and God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you're tempted, he will show you a way out so that you can endure. So, my dear friends... Flee from the worship of idols. You're reasonable people. Decide for yourselves if what I'm saying is true. When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And, and though we are many, we all eat from one loaf, showing that we are one body. Think about the people of Israel. Weren't they united by eating the sacrifices at the altar? What am I trying to say? Am I saying that food offered to idols has some significance or that idols are real gods? No, not at all. I'm saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and from the cup of demons too. You cannot eat at the Lord's table and at the table of demons too. What? Do we dare to rouse the Lord's jealousy? Do we think, or do you think, we are stronger than he is? What's he talking about here? Um, there's something going on here that culturally was relevant for the city of Corinth and the church there. There was the practice, there were many gods worshipped in Corinth. Uh, polytheism, the worship of many gods. Primarily, it was a pagan rituals and pagan worship. But they worshipped these gods, the Greek gods. Uh, and so there were temples there and shrines. And there was a practice of sacrificing meat to them. And, and after they would, the meat was used in these sacrifices, it would go to market and they could purchase it. All right? And oftentimes it was at a lower cost because it had been used in a sacrifice. And so they could get a little better deal on it. Uh, and, and for other reasons, it was attractive to purchase this. Well, the problem is it was used in a pagan sacrifice. As Paul says, it was used to worship demons. And so he uses the example of the Lord's Supper, how we share this together, the cup, right, and the bread, and we're sharing this meal, which means we're uniting ourselves with God, who is who we're worshiping through this practice. And he goes, if you're doing something, if you're eating this meat that's been used in pagan worship, then aren't you also engaging in the process, what would happened as that was used in worship? Now, he's going to go on to give a little different perspective, but right here, he's challenging this church to think about what they're doing. Think about what they're engaging in culturally. They were used to this. They'd grown up with it. This meat offered idols. It was an easy thing to get. It was available. As I said, it was attractive. There's reason they wanted to purchase it. And so he's challenged them. Think about what you're doing here. There's consequences to it. Think about the line of action that's tied to this, uh, to this practice. Is it really the best thing for you to do? Are there consequences to uh, engaging in this? I think he's pushing them to consider what is right, what is best. He starts off this passage by warning them this way. If you think you're doing well, be careful not to fall. If you think you're doing good in your walk with Jesus, you think you're standing strong, got no problems, no issues, no sin struggles, man, you're winning most of the time, you're doing the things you're supposed to, he says be careful. Don't let pride enter into your obedience. Obedience to God is something we're called to do, and I pray that you're doing well at it that you're winning, and that you're being obedient more times than not. But be careful of letting pride enter into that. The result of that is something toxic. 
We call it legalism, piety. It's the sense that self-righteousness enters into the equation. And all of a sudden, I feel better than others because I'm doing a pretty good job here. I'm doing what's right. Look at all these evil sinners around me. And it's, the, it's what happened oftentimes to the Pharisees or spiritual leaders. And Jesus challenged them on their heart. Listen, your behavior can be good, but where's your heart at? Don't allow pride to enter into your obedience. It, it is damaging to you. And we know that saying that pride comes before what? A fall. And so he's just saying, be cautious. Don't get proud as you follow Jesus. I hope you're doing well. If you think you're doing well, then be careful, be cautious. He says, flee again from the worship of idols. Run away from it. Flee from it. It's kind of his admonition in this area of meat offered idols. He's like, listen, this has a connotation here. It's connected to something. Flee from it. Don't have anything to do with it. There's no reason to get close to that. And so he pushes them in that direction. He says, I don't want you to participate with demons. Demonic activity is alive and well on our earth, in our, in our community, in our culture, in our country. We have an enemy, and he's real. Satan is not a myth or an imaginative idea who represents evil in the world. No, he is a being created by God, and he represents the force trying to pull away from and pull people away from, uh, from experiencing a relationship with God. And so demons are a part of his activity, and they're working. We've got to be discerning and aware of what happens in our world and where Satan's ideals and ideas are being pushed on us. We need to be aware of what those are and have a resistance to them. I don't want you to participate with evils or with demons. One of the conduits, I think, that the enemy works through, and I experienced this as a young person, is in the area of, uh, of our media, our entertainment. Music and movies are a conduit. Now, I did not like to hear that when I was a young person. I'll be honest with you. I thought, ah, there's nothing wrong. But it's true. It's a conduit. The messages that the enemy wants us to hear, he uses entertainment because we will willingly listen to it and enjoy it while we're being walked down. Our minds are being walked down the wrong direction. Be careful. I'm just telling you, be careful uh, what you expose yourself to. It is real. The effects are real, and the enemy will try to impact your life. There's a practice that came into our country uh, years ago called yoga, right? Yoga is just stretching, but it's also a religious activity. It's connected to Buddhism, Hinduism, right? It is a spiritual practice connected to those religions. Uh, Be careful that you're not involving yourself in one of those activities that involves prayer to demons, because some of them do. Uh, we, need to be, we need to know what we're doing. We need to be discerning about what we're part of. I'm not saying you can't do yoga ever. Don't hear me saying that. I'm just giving you some cautions. Be aware of what's going on in our culture. Uh, we use the word, you know, karma gets talked about all the time, right? Everybody uses it. Again, that's connected to a religion, came out of Hinduism, Buddhism. It's specific, it has a specific meaning. It's a teaching that comes from that, uh, those belief systems. We got to be careful about that. Know what you're doing. Our culture takes in everything from around the world, right? We just adopt anything. Our connection to God and our understanding of the truth of Scripture has faded. And so all of a sudden, we can find ourselves interacting with religious practices that have demonic connections that we're not even aware of. We've got to grow in our understanding of what we're engaged in and an effort to do what is right eliminate the practices, the behaviors, the activities that pull us away from God, that pull us in the direction of our struggle with sin. When we lived in Denver, planted a church in one of the suburbs, and we found out through, I can't remember who told us, but we found out that there was a swinger club, the biggest, one of the biggest ones in the nation was right in our little uh, suburb area, and uh, very active and very, uh, uh, just a going, happening thing. People flying in from all over the country to be a part of this. Listen, uh, swinging, open marriages, right? You know, that's where couples engage in sex with other couples and outside of the marriage covenant. Man, this stuff is demonic. It's coming from the devil, from the pit of hell, and it will destroy our lives to pull us in those directions. Yet some Christians, some believers, people, that they're pulled towards these things with the temptation and allure of making your marriage better, spicing up your life. No, man, there's nothing but destruction there. We've got to know where the devil is at work, right? And we've got to flee from it. Don't have anything to do with, um, with the work of the enemy. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, admonishes Christians to lay aside every weight 
and the sin that so easily entangles us. Many times the weights are simply distractions that create, create an enormous drag on our spiritual life. Some of the big things that we can identify are kind of easy. And most Christians would be like, I'm not having anything to do with that. I would never engage in that. But there are little things that, we can, uh, that can distract us away from what's best. Doing what's right in every situation. One pastor said it this way. He said, you know, you can run a race in army boots. I mean, it's within the rules. You're going to lose the race, but you certainly can do it if you want, right? We can choose sometimes. We say, listen, uh, I've got liberty as a Christian. I'm free to do this or that. But is it really what's best? Is it really what is helping us run our race most effectively? I want to challenge us and call us to use our mind, our intellect, our creativity to fight to do what's best, to do what's right. Um, Mary and I met uh, in college, first couple weeks of college. We were both 18. Um, we were both healthy and uh, sort of normal. And when we met each other, she was normal. I was kind of normal. When we met each other, there was an attraction, okay? There was what's called chemistry. We liked each other. We want to spend time together, okay? And that just grew because we we're both growing in our faith. That makes our the attraction stronger. And all of a sudden, we realized because we knew that God's call to us was to abstain sexually until we got married. But all of a sudden, we found ourselves in a difficult fight in order to accomplish that. I don't know if any of you know what I'm talking about, but it can be difficult. It was hard for us. Okay, so we, uh, we are moving through this. we got four years of college. We're trying to make it. So we get about uh, through our freshman year, and I start to realize um, we need to do something here, okay? We need to make this battle go away. What are our options? And then I thought, we can get married, right? Well, you're so young, you know, you're like 19. Can you really get married? Well, I'll ask her dad. Well, I asked her dad. He didn't say no. And so uh, we started moving that direction. So I asked her uh, in January, will you marry me? Yes. Okay, that makes, that like escalates up the, the, the difficulty because now you're like, well, really already, I mean, we're kind of already married. I mean, we committed to each other. You know, it's just a ceremony. Is there anything to that? You know, you start playing these games, right? Well, we had a commitment to fight for this. And I had spent the previous summer working in Montana on a ranch building fence because a forest fire had come in and burned it out. And so I called that rancher back. I said, can I come and work for you this uh, semester a little bit earlier than I did last year, but I can only work through June because I'm getting married in July. He agreed to that. And so I left town as quick as I could, because I, I thought, I want to win this. I want to be successful at achieving the goal. And I'm a human being, and I'm weak, and this is going to be hard. Listen, I'm just encouraging with this. We, I haven't done everything perfect. I don't have a, a, you know, a story about always doing the right thing. But in that instance, fighting to do what was right, even though it made things a little difficult, you know, Mary wasn't the happiest with me for taking off and leaving her to plan the wedding. She didn't know that I would have been no help planning the wedding. But anyway... I wasn't around, I wasn't there, but I was fighting to accomplish the goal, to stay, uh, to do what was right. I want to encourage you guys, let's think that way. Let's get our orientation focused on using our creativity and our abilities and our skills to, to do what's right. Putting God first and doing what's right at all times leads to the next behavior, which is to think about others. G is God, R is right, O is others. Think about how what you're doing affects others. First Corinthians 10, let's keep reading in, in verse 23. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. So you may eat any meat that is sold in the marketplace without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If someone who isn't a believer asks you home for dinner, accept the invitation if you want to. Eat whatever's offered to you without raising questions of conscience. But suppose someone tells you, this meat was offered to an idol. Well, don't eat it. Out of consideration for the conscience of the one who told you. It might not be a matter of conscience for you, but it is for, other, for the other person. For why should my freedom be limited by what someone else thinks? If I can thank God for the food and enjoy it, why should I be condemned for eating it? 
All right, Paul says, listen. <laughs> yeah, it was used in idol worship. I don't want you to be involved with demons. Some of you may feel a conviction about that. Then stay away from it. But he goes, really? As a Christian, it's just meat. <laughs> it, it, God made that meat just like every other kind of meat. And uh, really, there isn't anything wrong with it. And if you don't feel any conviction about it, then you can go ahead and eat it. And your, your freedom shouldn't be restricted by others. But he does say, how do you handle that with wisdom? How do you handle that freedom? Do you just kind of brashly and with whatever, I'm going to do whatever I want. It's what I want to do. I don't really care what anybody else thinks. Or do you walk through your life as a believer with an awareness of how what you're doing might affect somebody else? Do you have a sensitivity to that? And that's really what Paul is calling us to. There's all kinds of liberty that we have. We are free in Christ. We're not bound to live by the law. And that's clear. But Paul says, listen, we were bound by the the Old Testament law, which was uh, the, the, the Ten Commandments, the law of Moses. He goes, I live by the law of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives within me, and he calls me to an even greater righteousness. Right? And he starts to deal with our heart and our attitudes and our motivations. And he goes, the Holy Spirit's going to come in and change all of it. So it's not like your, your level of living and righteousness goes down when you trust in Christ because you're free. It actually goes up. But he says you, are, you do have the liberty to engage in things. Are you doing it with a consideration for others? I think, uh, I think alcohol is probably one of our equivalents to meat offered to idols in our culture because there's different, uh, different feeling about it or different sense about it within the church, within uh, the lives of Christians. Some have a great conviction they shouldn't ever drink uh, alcohol, and so they don't, right? And there's a conviction about that. And oftentimes that's connected to some family history of alcoholism or personal history with alcoholism, and it leads to a conviction that shouldn't have anything to do with it. There's nothing good in that. But then there's others who can enjoy one glass of wine, right? And they don't turn into a crazy person. They don't start you know, beating people up or whatever, right? They just enjoy that, and, and they're not drunk. And, and it's just one, and they're able to do it in moderation. And to that, <clears throat> the Scripture doesn't give us an admonition that we cannot, we must abstain. But I want to ask you to consider how what you do in your freedom affects others. Are you encouraging others in their walk with Jesus? Or are you just doing what you feel free to do? That is how we should walk through this. If we're going to grow, then our thoughts and our considerations of other people and how what we're doing affects them, it becomes part of our walk. This is a sign of spiritual maturity. But Paul says at the end, there's a false maturity. There are Christians that would say they're mature, but what they really are is legalistic. (laughs) And so they say, well, no good Christian would ever drink. And if you're a good Christian, you wouldn't do that. And so they, they sort of impose their own conviction on others that aren't convictions that are taught in Scripture, right? And so that's not maturity. That isn't spiritual maturity or Christian maturity. And so we've got to be careful of the two sides of it. The full-on liberty that says, I don't care what I'm doing, how that affects anybody else. And the side that says, hey, here's the spiritual measure, and everyone should live up to that. We need to walk towards maturity. And Paul lays that out for us in this passage. Do what is right and think about others. How is what you're doing affecting someone else? Your actions speak louder than your words. What you do says way more than what you say. The things you do, you're saying, this is all right. This is okay to do. And you might even be communicating it's a good thing to do. I had a friend who was a leader in a church, and, uh, you know, he felt like... cussing wasn't that big a deal. F-bomb, whatever, at work. He's like, listen, I work in an intense environment. It's part of the language. It's part of what happens. I don't think it's that big a deal. And I said, well, Colossians and Ephesians speak actually to that. I think you should look at scripture. I think there's a case to be made. Uh, Don't let any foul communication come out of your mouth, right? But only what is edifying building up of other believers. I think you should think about that. But I said, what about this? He had a son. I said, do you want your son to talk like that? Because when you do it, Dad, you're saying it's okay. You're saying that's what you want him to do. He's going to pick up on that stuff. Listen, how we live our lives, it matters. The things we do oftentimes become an endorsement. Let's think about the example that we're setting. Another issue that we have a problem with or can become an issue is how we handle conflict. Uh, How we handle conflict. 
in a community like this. We live around people for our entire lives. And some of those relationships get fractured in high school and they stay that way for the next 50 years, right? How you handle conflict as a Christian is communicating something about what's okay, what's right, how am I supposed to live? We can get caught in that trap and we can walk and live uh, in a life. We can teach our kids. We can pass on that hatred and bitterness to generations. And yet we're told in scripture to live as much as it's up to us to live at peace with all men, to solve those, to put, to squash those issues and forgive. How do you handle food and alcohol consumption? We talked about that. Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Um, men, what about passing around porn, nude pictures, texting them on your phone, videos, right? I can't remember the first time I was my job at Staples in Atlanta. These two kids, uh, phones were pretty new. And these two young men were there and they uh, had something up on their uh, phone watching it. I walk up and I'm, man, I can't uh, unsee that. But, um, but here's the deal. It's prolific. And it's, it's happening even in our community amongst people that say they're Christians, passing this stuff around. Listen, sometimes you got to literally say to another person, look, I don't want any more of that. Stop sending me that stuff. And there's got to be sometimes a confrontation to say, that's not right. I'm not going to be a part of that. Would you want a picture of your daughter, your wife, your mom, right? Come on. It's not hard to figure out this isn't right, and it's not good. And so we need to put those things away, out of our lives. Think about how what you're doing, what it communicates to others. Gossip is another one. It can be tough. Gossip is something we can engage in. It's sharing information that should not be shared. A lot of people think that if it's true, it's not gossip. No, that's not the line, okay? The line is, would you want somebody else talking about you in the way you're talking about them? Would you want that done about you? In, in, and we can get used to that. We experience it so much, it can just be something that we do without even thinking. Listen, what we do, what we engage in as we talk about others, it says something to other people. Um, you may have a hard time identifying what's right and wrong. This can be tough in our culture, because uh, we have lost so much of our moral guidance. Uh, <clears throat> there's a guy by the name of Dennis Prager. Um, he does some educational videos now and stuff, and he's been working for years. But back in 93, he uh, revealed, uh, he wrote this. He said, it's no wonder that in 15 years of asking high school students throughout America whether in an emergency situation they would save their dog or a stranger, they're in an emergency situation, life or death. You have your dog or a stranger. Which one are you going to save? They said, well, I'm going to save my dog because I love my dog. I'm not going to save the stranger because I don't, I don't know the stranger. I have no affection for them. He said, listen, we've shifted in our country. Our moral guidance used to be God and religious guidance, right? The scriptures. It's moved from that to our feelings and what we feel like doing. And that's our moral code. Well, I feel like doing it, so I'm going to do it. And that makes it right. And we fight for that. We defend it, and our culture does. And yet the reality is, <clears throat> that isn't where truth comes from for us. Our moral guidance comes from the Scriptures. As we live for God, as we put Him first, we do what's right, we think about others. We do all of this so that as we run the race, we run in such a way as to win. The W in grow stands for win. Run your race to win. Jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Paul says this, Don't you realize that in a race everyone runs, but only one person gets a prize? So run to win. All athletes are disciplined in their training. They do it to win a prize that will fade away, but we do it for an eternal prize. So I run with purpose in every step. I am not just shadow boxing. I discipline my body like an athlete, training it to do what it should. Otherwise, I fear that after preaching to others, I myself might be disqualified. Discipline, living with purpose, and don't get disqualified. These are keys to running to win. And we all want to run to win. But I know for some of us, we feel as though we've fallen. We've messed up in an area of our lives. We know God says it's wrong. And we go, uh, I'm kind of disqualified. I'm out of the race. I messed up. I don't know if I can get back in it. I want to tell you something, that though the apostles challenging us to run to win, winning for many of us is going to look like finishing. Winning is one thing. You do not have the option of quitting. Derek Redman was a great runner. He was an even 
greater finisher. Derek will be forever remembered for his staggering performance in the 400-meter men's semifinals uh, finals during the Summer Olympics 1992 in Barcelona, Spain. After years of training, he found his dream coming true. He was in the semifinals for this race. And as he ran his 400-meter heat, he pulled a hamstring about halfway through the race, and he fell uh, on the track, collapsed in failure, too injured to go on. Writhing in pain, he, as he uh, lay there, the other runners passed him by, and he saw his dream of winning that race evaporate. Medical crew arrived to carry him out on a stretcher, but Derek said, there's no way I'm getting on that stretcher. Because though he had fallen down and he was injured, he wasn't going to quit. He said, I'm, I'm going to finish this race. At the same time that he said that, uh, an older gentleman up in the crowd, who was a large man, began to run towards the track. Running through the crowd, pushing people out of the way, uh, ran past security, ran up to Derek. And he said, Derek, uh, you know, um, I'm here to help you. And, and at first, Derek thought it was somebody coming to stop him from finishing. So he said, get out of here, you know, leave me alone. And, Derek, and, and finally, um, the man said to him, Derek, it's me. And it was his father. And uh, Derek said, Dad, I've got to finish this race. I can't quit. <clears throat> and so uh, Dad said, listen, uh, if you're going to finish, then I'm going to help you. And so he, he uh, put his arm around him, lifted him up, and they began to limp towards the finish line. And the crowd began to realize, stadium full of 65,000 people, millions watching on TV, they began to realize he wasn't limping off the track, but he was trying to finish the race. And so they began to cheer him on as he, he and his dad moved towards the finish line. As it took time, right, very slow to get there, they continued to cheer him, don't quit, don't stop. And dad, as they reached the finish line, dad stepped away so he could cross the line on his own. He finished the race. It's what I want for you. It's what I want for me. Let's don't quit. Let's don't anything stop us from running the race for Jesus. God, thanks for calling us to be your disciples, calling us to follow you, to live for you. We need to put you first. We need to do what is right we need to think about how what we, does, uh, what we do affects others. And Father, we want to run to win. We want to finish. I pray for each person here. God, would you give them a, a fresh sense of your presence, your power, your calling. And no matter what they're in the middle of, no matter what they've been through, God, would you lift up their head once again, help them to get up, and to continue to run. God, use us. We want to we be people that follow you, that are different. And so I pray that you'd just move in us, God. Move in us so that we would grow to be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name.